Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Performance Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network, and I'm your host, Mark. And today's guest makes me appreciate my childhood. Ligonbar joins me to talk about a lot of stuff. He knew early on that music was his calling. He identified with the musicians he saw on TV before he could even play music. But he went to college for English and not music. He also met his wife at this time, and those two things were foundational for his musical style. He moved to Seattle and started the band Red Jacket Mine. Turns out, the families of the Red Jacket Miners weren't exactly thrilled about the band. But fans of the music were. And the members of Red Jacket Mine have been an important part of Lincoln's life ever since. After a few albums, the band ended. Life happened and people moved, including Lincoln and his wife. And it just became too difficult to continue. When he decided to start writing solo material, Lincoln changed everything. He confronted traumas from an abusive childhood and it changed how he wrote. It even changed how the music sounded, whether it's his solo albums or the soundtrack he wrote for a fascinating documentary called The Past Is Never Dead. Must be that classic combo of dark minor key jazz and child abuse. But seriously, the music is a left turn from a lot of the stuff that I usually listen to. I highly recommend Lincoln's latest album, Forfeit the Prize. Links to buy it and to follow him on social media are at lincolnbarmusic.com. And you can follow the podcast at Performance ANX on Twitter and Instagram. If you'd like to support the show, try ko-fi.com slash performance anxiety or buy merch at performanceanx.threadless.com. And I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. It's Lincoln Barr on Performance Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network. <laughs> oh, um, okay. So it, it, it's just sort of like, Hi, this is who I am, and check out my new record, and thanks for listening to Performance Anxiety, or is, is that? Okay, cool. All right. All right. <laughs> yeah, I've noticed. I've... <laughs> All right. Um, this is Lincoln Barr, and you're listening to the Performance Anxiety Podcast. Uh, check out my new record, Forfeit the Prize, out now on Two Roads Records. I'm a one-man deal. I record it, research it, edit it all and by myself. And you're productive, man. Yeah, and you do your research. I was telling my wife about this last night, and she, I was like, he really listens, right? Like, I've been so impressed by, oh, the, especially, like I said, you've spoken to a number of my friends. And so 
these are people that I know their work really, really well. And yeah. I'm like, he really goes deep and I love it. Oh, good. I'm, I'm glad. I hope I can do justice to, to your work. So we'll, we'll see. So. <laughs> but I'm sure it'll be great. What I like to do is, as we said before, go start from the beginning and go. It, the show's basically a very, a, a pretty deep dive into your career and how you got to where you are. So thank you for joining me. Uh, I've been really enjoying the music. It's, and I'm familiar with Red Jacket Mine. And you know, it's very funny and we'll get into, we'll get into things here in a second, but the name Red Jacket Mine, Mm -hmm. it it always confounded me. (laughs) You're not the only one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the reason for that is because of my dumb brain i was not thinking mine like minors i'm thinking mine like possessive right yeah and i'm like this is such a strange like he really likes that red jacket i don't know what (laughs) he (laughs) named his band after that's very it's an interesting character i'm gonna have to check this out so (laughs) so that's kind of where my brain went when i first heard of a red jacket mine several years ago Mm -hmm. so I just kind of felt like I needed to get that out of the way. Before. Well, you're not alone. <laughs> the, the name is the source of much confusion and, and, uh, and resultant obscurity. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. So to get to Red Jacket Mine, you had to start playing instruments and playing music somewhere else. Uh, you are from Southeast Missouri, if I got that mm-hmm. correct. What were you listening to back then that really excited you? Was it something that your parents were playing? Were were your parents into music at all? Were they did they play? How did you get into I mean, even before playing an instrument, how did you really find the music that that really started to inspire you? Yeah, so I grew up in southeast Missouri mostly. I also lived a little bit in the Kansas City area and then in the Memphis, Tennessee area, northwest Mississippi to be exact. And in Southern Arkansas. So all up and down the Mississippi River Valley, wow. really. But uh, but I was born in Southeast Missouri and ended up back there around high school time. And I started playing guitar when probably when I was about 13 when I lived near Memphis. And it was, you know, that was the early 90s. And that was and so it was like the alternative rock boom and, every, you know, Nirvana and Pearl Jam and all those things yeah. on MTV. Oh, and, yeah. And so that was the immediate like catalyst, right. For wanting to get a guitar and, and kind of get started. And it was me and several other of my peers all got instruments at the same time. Uh, but I think going back a little bit further, I, I mean, I grew up, it was, there wasn't a lot of music in the house. My parents did and do appreciate music, but no one in my immediate family played music at all. Oh, Okay. Um, my mom did have a guitar from when she was a kid, but she didn't really ever play it. That was the first guitar I played on, though. It was in the it was sitting in the closet for most of my childhood. And oh, at one point I got curious and got it out. I still have it somewhere around here. It's oh, just wow. a, it's a 60s German made classical guitar. Pretty, pretty nice little guitar. But, nice. um, you know, I, I grew up in the church, in the Pentecostal church, and music is a big part of the services there. And I did have some cousins that played music or very sort of um, natural, facile musicians. And I, and I was thinking about it not long ago in a, an interview, and I think they were a big part of inspiring me and thinking just like, oh, wow, you know, people 
that I know can do this. Yeah. Right. That's and, a big um, thing. Yeah. Just to see it done. Right. Like I see this person in this mundane setting and now I see them in this magical setting, exactly. right. Where they're making, making music. And so I think that was a big part of it. And I think it's just something always resonated with me at a sort of identity level, you know, of like, if I see people on TV play music, there was just this recognition of like, that's, that's me. Oh, wow. Right. I, and I've heard other people say this too. I think the songwriter uh, who I'm a huge fan of uh, Joe Henry, I've heard him say something very similar about seeing the uh, Johnny cash show when he was a kid and just having that recognition and saying like, you know, it seems so funny to, for a little kid to be looking at Johnny cash and say, that's me. Right. But I know, but, but I, I recognize that feeling in myself too, of just that, uh, there's something that's resonating there of like, this is my, my destiny in, in one way or another. So Man. Yeah, I, I think that had always been stirring in me. But then I, you, I got a guitar in my early teens, and immediately just kind of jumped into it and took it really seriously. Um, okay, I think it felt like a way out of my circumstances, um, right. not in a, um, not in any sort of like financial or career way, but more in a in a. On on the soul level, <laughs> it was a safe it was a safe place for you, and it was something that could belong to me, oh, right? Okay. It wasn't something that was put upon me or or that I was sort of set out for me. And this is this is your path. Is because no one else in my immediate family played it. It was something that that was mine alone. Uh, okay, and I think that that was a big part of it too. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Were you singing when you started playing guitar too, or did that come later? It took a little bit uh, for me to get comfortable with that. I mean, and by a little bit, I mean, you know, 25 years, but uh, <laughs> I think that, <laughs> I think it, it I, I don't think I, I was immediately singing. I mean, we sang in church and things like that but as a group, but I think it, it was, I didn't start taking singing seriously until I was in my, you know, in college probably is when I, I started to get really serious about songwriting and then, okay. you know, uh, as a result, singing. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Before you skip over this ad, give me one minute. Like most podcasts, I pick sponsors carefully and I use the products that advertise here. Pure Spectrum CBD is a product that has been really beneficial for me. They have a wide variety of great products that can be used on a daily or as needed basis. I've been using the tincture every day and it's been wonderful for easing anxiety. And I absolutely love the isolate. I use it instead of acetaminophen or ibuprofen. And it's worked so well for the relief of aches and pains. They also have soaks, lotions, salves, gummies, and more, plus an entire line for fitness recovery. They even have products for your pets. See everything they offer at PureSpectrumCBD.com. And if you have questions, they're there to help. They helped me when I had no idea where to start. After you fill your cart, use code PERFORMANCEANX for 15% off your purchase. Pure Spectrum CBD. Pure Spectrum CBD, Pure Spectrum CBD. So was it one of those things where I'm writing these songs, I'm really the only one that can, that can perform them well? Or we, we, did you, I've had some people on here who, who were songwriters first and performers second. You know, they were writing yeah. and, and I, I'll let somebody else play. I like this, but somebody else will, can, can sing better than I can. So, mm-hmm. or, so we, which camp were you in? Were you more of the, I'm singing and uh, I'm writing these songs for me or I'm writing these songs to be played? Um, I think I probably from the beginning was writing songs for m- myself to sing. Now, you okay. know, I think that over time, my ability to, to write for my own voice has hopefully improved. And, uh, <laughs> and, just my com- my comfort level with with expressing myself in that way ha- has improved but i don't think i ever i mean don't get me wrong there is some allure to the idea of writing songs for other people to sing and i certainly there's a lot of people that i look up to that have done that but it always felt quite personal to me yeah. right and, and so it, i think that in, in many ways, I, I didn't necessarily feel like even w- given my I- inherent uh, limitations, I'm not sure that anyone else was going to be able to to do it the way that it, it, it needed to be done. So I think right. it was more about building that skill in myself. So the performing in church, was that the very like the first public performance you, you were doing or had you done other things that like played with high school bands or, or anything like that? There was a little bit of that too, but I think that was kind of a concurrent activity. Yeah. Right. Well, I think by the time you, know, once I kind of gotten a little bit of facility on the instrument, I, I immediately kind of started playing in church as a part of the praise and worship band or whatever right, they would yeah. call it. And, you know, I think I learned a lot from that experience of just how to, to play with other people. Um, That's a big and I thing. Yeah, it is. It, it really is. Right. Cause it's one thing to play in your room. Um, but it's another thing to try and sort of gel as a part of an, an ensemble. And, right. you know, I think that my, 
if I heard the tapes now, I would probably be very, uh, very, uh, embarrassed, but there were, you know, I definitely got something out of it. And then just the, the joy of performing, right. And, uh, you know, kind of making a sound with other people and getting that feedback from the audience. That was sure. my, that was my avenue for that. Right. In my, in my early life. When did things shift to, was there a moment, I guess, maybe where beyond, you know, beyond seeing somebody on TV going, this, that's, that's me. Was there a moment where you're like, okay, this is, this is my career. This is what I'm going to do. I mean, was it, or, or was that, like you said, was, it, was that there from the first time you saw somebody on stage or, or heard, heard this a song on the radio? Or? You know, I, I would say, you know, certainly from the first time that I, I picked up the guitar and I started to be able to make sounds that were recognizable as music (laughs) to me, at least I think from that moment, I, you know, that was kind of all there, there was for me in terms of my, my vocation, right? Like what I, I think I felt from the, you know, early, early on, like, this is what I, this is what I do. This is who I am. And then it was just a matter of kind of getting, you know, built, like I said, building that muscle. I, I can empathize with you a bit with my photography a little bit with yeah. that. And, and I don't do it as a profession anymore, but I, that, that actually kind of frees me up to do what I want to do now. So, right. But it's right. something I've I, like, as soon as I picked up the camera, I was just like, this is fun. I want to do this mm-hmm. all the time. So, yeah. And, and now with digital, it's much cheaper. yeah no kidding yeah when did the idea for red jacket mine come up was that a solo thing to start off with because i believe i remember hearing that you know you you were writing the songs by yourself and you started off maybe playing as a duo yeah yeah no that's right um so i went to college in southeast missouri and i when i entered college i was i was already sort of fully immersed in music but i was more more of a guitar player and probably just starting to dabble with writing songs, but I was also, let me ask you a question about that real quick. If you don't mind, I don't mean to interrupt, but so at this time you're going to college, what did, and and you know that this is what you want to do for a living. What are you deciding to go to college for? What are you studying? Well, so I had a scholarship, uh, which was awesome because my, you know, did not grow up with a lot of resources. I know um, that feeling I'm I'm working on getting one for Penn state for my daughter. (laughs) Awesome. I'm not even a Penn State <laughs> fan. Good luck. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, college is now, I mean, I don't have to tell you now yeah, it's three. so too expensive, right? It, it, you know, state school in Missouri wouldn't have been that expensive, but it was still too expensive, right? For yeah. my family to uh, afford. But I had done well in high school and, and I, that was, again, talk about like a, like a, an avenue for me to kind of get out into the world and have my, the life that I wanted rather than the life that was sort of given to me. I, I, that was my, that was my way, right. Of sort of launching into the world. And so I had the, I, I, I had the scholarship, but I didn't really, you know, like I said, all I'd ever really wanted to do was play music, but I didn't have any formal training in okay. music. I didn't, I, I mean, I still can't read music like on the staff, or anything like that. And I hadn't even really had any guitar lessons at all. Oh wow! And so I didn't have the basis. I wasn't in band in school or anything like that. So I didn't have the basis to study music. 
so what I ended up studying in, uh, in college was English and philosophy. And I think that that has served me really well in kind of an indirect way. Um, certainly the 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 writing. Yeah. 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 And I love, and I've always loved to read and, and definitely still, you know, a heavy, heavy reader. And so that's what I ended up studying. And I think that was, that was great. It was actually probably more beneficial than if I had studied music because it was kind of, I was sort of marinating in ideas okay, and I was able to kind of build a, you know, a community and, and by bouncing off these other sort of like intellectual type influences, I was able to kind of form my own worldview. Right. right. Uh, and, and, and I, yeah, I can't overstate the importance of that period of my life, even though it didn't, it wasn't a, a, a direct path to like, okay, and then now this is how you're going to make a living or right. this is, you know, um, but I met my wife there and she was hugely influential and in person, uh, in my life in terms of it, just inspiring me and the encouragement and support because yeah. she recognized me from day one as, as, as who I am and never once wavered right in terms of what I intended to pursue. Um, oh, that's wonderful. She's still my biggest supporter 23 years later. And so, which is um, crazy because apparently you, you pointed this out. We share right. a wedding anniversary. Yeah. It's, sorry. I know that was really creepy, but <laughs> I think you were speaking to my friend, Nora O'Connor maybe. <laughs> yes. And, and it just happened to be somehow you said something about October 7th and it was yesterday or something like that. And I was like, could that possibly be true? And yeah, well, then, October 6th, yeah. 2001, that's yep. a uh, auspicious day. It is. It's, Hey, you know, <laughs> apparently if, if that's the day you were married, it's going to, it's, well, wait, I'm, I'm going to knock on wood. It's going to work out at least for 23 years. <laughs> yeah, that much we can be sure of. Exactly. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I know one other couple, a musical friend of mine in Seattle, uh, this guy, John Ramberg, that sings for a band called The Tripwires. He and his wife, Kelly, got married on that same day as well. Oh so there must be something about it. That's crazy. That is awesome. <laughs> well, you know, I don't normally subscribe to dates being important, particularly, mm. but hey, maybe there's something to it in this case. Yeah, I don't. I don't know either. All, all I know is that I don't know a whole lot. And exactly. so. <laughs> exactly. So, so, all right. So you, you're in college, you meet your wife, you're studying mm-hmm. English. Is that when Red Jacket Mine or, or the seeds of Red Jacket Mine was formed? Yeah, it, it, it is. Because, you know, at that time I was really into a lot of this kind of homemade pop music was what was turning me on my ear at that at moment, whether okay. it was things like guided by voices or early Elliot Smith or, um, the elephant six collective from Athens, Georgia, or, uh, basically, you know, it all centered around the cassette four track machine. Yeah. Right? It was like, okay, you can make a record on a cassette four track machine. So I, of course I had to get one for oh, myself. Yeah. And that's what really jumpstarted my songwriting. And so I, I very quickly kind of taught myself how to use that machine and make just the minimally viable recordings on, on it. Um, but it gave me an outlet and I was doing it every single day. Right. Oh, wow. I, I, there was a time in that first year or so that I had the, the four track 
that I would write and record a new song almost every day. Um, and I'm nowhere near that prolific, uh, (laughs) nowadays, but, but at the time, like I was really just getting my reps in and a lot of songs came out of that period. And so pretty quickly, and this would have been 2002, 2003, I started to kind of put together a a group of these songs and want to, you know, make a little CD. So I, you know, I figured out, I downloaded uh, cool edit pro on my (laughs) PC and I figured out how to, I got an adapter to, to take the RC out, RCA outs from my four track and get it into the computer. Oh, wow. And, and basically just sort of mixed down to the digital uh, file and burn CDs and printed out artwork and hand cut them <laughs> out, right? Like, and, and made these CDs. And then wow. there's, these are uh, mercifully out of print, I'm afraid <laughs> to say, but uh, um <laughs> And so at the time I was also really into, I bristled at the idea of being a singer songwriter. Cause I felt like at that time it had connotations that I didn't feel, you know, related to me. Okay. Uh, I, you know, a very kind of like, um, confessional uh, or, or, you know, hard on your sleeve sort of thing. And I was uh. more into these kind of singular personality driven projects that while they might've really been one person, they were presented as a band. And I'm thinking of things like Sparkle Horse, um, who still was just a massive influence. And so I was looking for a name that was evocative without meaning anything that I could sort of quite frankly, hide behind. Right. I could sort of say, Oh, this is, this is a band. Um, (laughs) And, and kind of, and I grew into it as a band, right? Like, uh, but the, the first couple of red jacket mine releases came out in 2003. And those were really just me and the four track. The second one did have a couple of contributions from a drummer named Andrew Salzman, who was from that same town in Cape, uh, in Missouri, Cape Girardeau, uh, that I lived in, but lived in Seattle already. He had moved to Seattle in the late nineties. And he ended up being the drummer in Red Jacket Mine after I moved to Seattle for 13 years. Um, we played together. Wow. But he he was just visiting his family and and we he was a friend of a friend. And so we set up in their basement and he cut a few drum tracks. So those were the first contributions from someone that wasn't me on a Red Jacket Mine release. And oh I continued to play under that name throughout college. I graduated in 2004 and my wife and I moved to Seattle. And it was after that, that we, I started to put together Red Jacket Mine as a band. And at first you're right, that was a duo. A- Andy and I played together quite, you know, better part of a year as, as a duo, guitar and drums. But we started to add pieces after that and became a, a proper rock band. So you mentioned moving to Seattle. What, what drew you there? Was there a, a specific purpose or was it just, Hey, it's Seattle sounds nice. I mean, yeah, w- my wife and I, we always, you know, we, we didn't want to stay in, in Missouri. And when I graduated, that felt like our opportunity to make a change. And we had visited, we had some friends that had lived in Seattle previously. And so that had sort of planted a seed and we visited once in 2004. And we also went to Vancouver and Victoria, BC and loved them all. Uh, but Seattle just felt right. Mm -hmm. And so we made, we made a plan to, to make our escape. And, um, and yeah, I think, you know, that was really just sort of driven by, um, culture and a 
the sense of sort of discovery, right? Like there were certainly going to be a lot more opportunities for me to meet like-minded musicians in Seattle and venues to play and all these things. And then my wife, her, she's a psychiatrist. Um, she, and so in that time she was still in doing her undergrad, but, um, the university of Washington was, you know, was a great, was a great program for her to do her biology degree and, and, and move on, uh, to medical school and things like that. So it was good for her as well, but it was, you know, I think it was largely, uh, (laughs) quite frankly, a sacrifice (laughs) that she made so that I could have more opportunities to play music. And, you know, we, that, that was a, I, I, yeah, Seattle was just so pivotal, right? Like I, I, that's where I really made my, my musical family. And that's where most of them still reside. Um, oh, really? And, yeah. And I still do most of my work, you know, recording and things like that in, in Seattle. And so that oh, cool. it was just such a, such an important place and, and time for me at those, those early days in Seattle. So when you got there and, and you're, you're starting to, work on Red Jacket Mine. Were you playing out a lot as the band is recording and, and growing from your solo project into a full-on band? I mean, there yeah, a quite a bit. Getting- yeah, yeah, we did. Um, you know, I think that we, we pretty quickly, you know, at that time, the music scene still felt pretty approachable. I'm not sure if I was starting out now, if it would still feel the same in Seattle. I think the stakes of everything are just higher. Like the cost of living is so much higher and the, and the, you know, uh, commercial real estate is so much. And I think that there, that has raised the stakes of just the basic like rock club, you know, how do they make ends meet and what needs to happen in terms of people coming in the door and in order to make that viable. Yeah at the time it just didn't feel as much as competitive and as intimidating. And so, yeah, we, I got a job right after I moved to town at a shop called Emerald city guitars. And that was really important uh, because that may, that allowed me to make a lot, a lot of connections in the music scene, including people that played in the band and certainly all the bands that we shared shows with. And so, yeah, we, we, pretty quickly sort of dove into the, the local scene. And yeah, I mean, you know, it it took a while to build up a head of steam, but there was a time where we were playing, you know, 50, I mean, this doesn't seem a lot, but for a local band, right? Like maybe 50 plus shows a a year in the, in the region. Right. So it's pretty steady, steady gigging. All right. So as a little aside here, uh, I believe, I remember hearing the, the band name, is based on an actual mining disaster, an explosion, yeah. I think, if I remember correctly. I I, I think and I heard in another interview, you mentioned that the families of miners, they were not very happy with you choosing that name. What Did they ever say what, what the reason was? Well, so yeah, I, you know, I have no personal connection to the red jacket mine, but yeah, I believe it was a, a mine in, uh, I, I believe actually maybe there have been multiple mines called red jacket mine, but okay. I got it from a song from the Phipps family that was on a Smithsonian folkways anthology. Oh, wow. Um, okay. And it was called the red jacket mine disaster. Um, and like I said, I just felt like it, it felt evocative without meaning anything in particular to me. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, but when we, when Red Jacket Mind put out its second record uh, called Lover's Lookout in 2009, that was the first time that we started to get a little bit of like attention in the press and things like that. And somehow we got on the radar of a uh, descendant of one of uh, the Red Jacket Miners. And we got a, um, you can probably still find it. We, it, we got a <laughs> review on the iTunes store that said, this music does not honor the miners nor their legacy. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, it's that, a fair cop, right? Like I don't, I, I, I you know, I, it, it wasn't intended to, well, yeah. uh, it wasn't intended to, to, to dishonor them either. Right. You know, but, uh, this but is a mining uh, disaster tribute album. It's, right. you know, it's, this is my band. Right. But you know, you can't please everyone. No, I mean, I feel like somebody screaming at Soundgarden that their music doesn't honor the sculpture. <laughs> right. You know, it doesn't make any sense. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So anyway, I, th- I thought that was interesting. So I'm, I'm always, I love origins of band names. I love finding out how, how people pick these, in, these very interesting names. And, and then when there's backlash over it, it always makes me wonder why, why, why? It's just a name. Yeah. It's, it's just a, the name of it. There's no no malicious intent behind it. It's it's an interesting name, and if somebody looks it up, it'll bring attention possibly to whatever they want. Sure, you know whatever that happens to be the red jacket mine incident or incidents or or right. the sound garden sculpture. You know, I don't know, but maybe maybe I just try to think of it rationally instead of emotionally. Right. <laughs> but I went back and I, I was listening to the albums and. It's got this really cool, like, 70s rock palette to the sound. It's mm-hmm. the instrumentation, the composition, vocals, all this, like, classic rock feel to them. And we were talking about iTunes reviews, and that, uh, the best description I saw, I believe, is from one of those reviews, and it sums it up perfectly. It's a smart blend of power pop and old-school soul. Shows a reverence for the 70s without resorting to slavish homage. Mm-hmm. I think that is the perfect way. I... I could try to plagiarize that or, or rewrite it, but no point because that's exactly the sound. And there's a really awesome like country rock tinge to some of the songs too, which mm-hmm. I, I always love that. That's that's kind of what I grew up listening to. My dad was a big yeah. big uh, Flying Burrito Brothers fan and all that oh, stuff. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I can hear some of that and, and you know, Merle Haggard and, and all. So mm-hmm. I can definitely hear some of those early to mid seventies, even country rock sounds to red jacket mm-hmm. mine. And that's kind of what, one of the things that drew me in. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I think that we, it, the review that you mentioned is probably for our, maybe our 2013 record, someone else's cake, or perhaps the EP that came after that pure delight. That was when the band really hit its stride. And I think that was, you know, we put out a couple of records, uh, Hello Old Cloud in 2008 and Lovers Lookout in 2009. And both of them, I think, have a lot of great songs 
and great experience, you know, recording them and, and all those things. But I think I was still searching for the lane that I wanted to inhabit uh, as a songwriter. And certainly like even just vocally, I, I think I was still trying to find exactly kind of what my voice was. I, um, in 2013, though, we had had a couple of lineup changes and uh, I would attribute the sort of success of that record, Someone Else's Cake, to a couple things. Number one is I started working with a producer and engineer named Johnny Sangster, who's yes. based in Seattle. And I've worked with him ever since. So we've been working together for over a decade now wow. and probably recorded upwards of 100 songs at this point. Wow. But um but someone else's cake was the first record we made with Johnny. We, it also is the first appearance of a gentleman named Daniel Walker on keys okay. and Dan's from uh, Oklahoma. And he had moved to Seattle pretty recently at that time, maybe in 2011. And he and I met and cause I had always wanted a keyboard player for our band. Uh, but though at that time, especially it was really, really hard to find someone in Seattle, especially someone that could play convincingly in a, in a rock, context oh um, really really difficult wow. keyboard players are they're very valuable commodity <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but uh but dan and i just hit it off immediately and he went all in with our band and and he just changed everything in terms of the the palette that was available right like for uh, our music and dan's been a close collaborator of mine ever since he's played on every single re one of my solo records oh, wow. he's he did a bunch of the string arranging on my latest record and is just one of my closest friends and so those two people that made their first appearance on that record someone else's cake we also had the support from a great uh now defunct but not, but a great fledgling record label in seattle called finn records and they had they helped us press vinyl for the first time they helped us make music videos for the first time and so those sort of things combined with a band hitting its stride creatively and then getting just a little extra push i think it enabled that record to be heard by a lot more people and it's a real confidence builder right like oh, yeah. when you're starting to get the feedback that you that you you crave it inspires you to to kind of double down. Right. Yes. You know what I mean? And, and make, uh, take more creative risks and, and just kind of continue to sort of pursue that. And so the, the band really, we, uh, we were really propelled by, by that, that energy at that time. Well, someone else's cake deservedly got, got a lot of attention because I was listening to it, uh, actually this morning, this morning, still this morning, uh, mm -hmm. like Amy, what, that's a, Oh yeah. That is a killer opener, man. That's a nice fuzzed oh, out opener. That one always t gets my tongue tied. Beller and Ball. Oh, I'm looking at the. Oh, okay, I'm looking at the. They've got a misspelled on here. Oh and, no! Yeah. <laughs> so oh, that's one thing I've noticed. You need to get after uh, Discogs because they've got. They're missing quite a few things for you. And, oh really? Uh, and apparently they're misspelling things here because it's 
it's oh no and i've i should have known because i was listening to it the other day and watching the video which i love the video for that song that's oh uh, yeah <laughs> i love the sense of humor that you guys have but i should so i should have known it was it was Beller and Ball, not Brawl, but I'm looking at it on Discogs and they have it misspelled. also missing the ep the pure delight ep that's not on oh, okay. at all. and i also don't see this early singles like you were talking about so so hmm. i was missing some information myself so i got to get on discogs to update it's, that stuff no no problem it's uh, like <laughs> these all saw very limited uh, uh release <laughs> <laughs> well i was lucky because i did find pure delight on youtube so, oh yeah, mm -hmm. so it is up there. So I can listen to it at least, which is good. Even though, because I do like to buy th things from Discogs, and if it's not on there, if it's not on Discogs, it's not on the marketplace either. So, right, gotta figure that one out. But well, I might be able if you like CDs, I might be able to help you out. Uh, so we can talk about that after the. Uh... <laughs> Here's a. Did you, that's just right. What I have right next to me, I've got probably thirty five hundred in various boxes in the in the house so yes right. i love cds <laughs> awesome. all right beyond discogs mess ups did the band keep growing because of the of, of what you were writing because it went like you said it went from a duo and then i saw on the videos from uh jupiter studios it looked like there's the band grew to like a six piece mm. was it because of the music was the complexity of the music because it seems like it's getting more and more lush a little more complex a little more a little more instrumentation in it or was it just yeah this is just natural this is i want this guy in i want to hear i want to make i want to, to fill out the sound a little bit more yeah i mean i do think that that's true i think it was kind of the driven by the songs now you know to be clear the the ensemble that you see on those jupiter studios videos like they weren't playing every show with us, right? Okay. They, they were assembled. And now all, all those people pretty much play on the record in one capacity or another. The extra guitar player is Johnny Sankster, who, like I said, is our producer. Uh, the extra vocalist is my friend Jefferson Curtis Brown, who um, is just a very good friend of mine and a great singer. He's, he's sung on, he sang on that record. He's sung on both of my solo albums. And then the horn players, yeah, they had played on the record and joined us for that show. So that was sort of like almost like a, a record release celebration. And so we had oh, okay. kind of assembled a bigger band. Well, that makes sense. But for the most part, we were gigging as a, as a four piece um, throughout those years. Okay. And were you the sole songwriter for Red Jacket Mine or did everybody else yeah. contribute? Okay. Yeah, no, I, I was writing all the songs, but then, you know, bringing them to the band for, uh, for arrangement. One of the, uh, the the cool things I liked about the band is musically, it, it sounds pretty upbeat, you know, it's, mm -hmm. but even the dark, there's some darkness to it. Like 
I sleep just fine or NyQuil and wine. They're a little bit darker, <laughs> but they, the yeah. music, they still sound upbeat. I always like that dichotomy of an yeah. upbeat song with darker lyrics. It makes you listen. It makes me listen more. That's cool. Yeah. No, I think it, it you know, that's always, that's been something that I was uh, drawn to. And I think it particularly the songs of that time period, maybe have a little bit more cynicism in them than, um, than what I'm doing nowadays, uh, okay. maybe a little bit less vulnerability and a little bit more of that sort of cynical or, rye take on on the world and so that felt especially appropriate i think probably <laughs> at that time to kind of cloak okay. those sentiments in uh in a more in a more poppy context were you writing stuff for your eventual solo work at this point because this is around the time when the, the band kind of stops isn't it yeah, we, so in 2015, my wife got into medical school. And so we moved to central Washington where she went to medical school in Yakima, which isn't very far from Seattle. It's only about two hours or so, but okay. it made just like the, the practical matters of being in an active band a little bit challenging. Sure. Uh, and so we didn't immediately sort of close up shop, but it definitely slowed things down. And that period of time though coincided with me sort of going through a, a personal crisis and 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 facing some of the trauma of my childhood in a uh, in a more head on uh, kind of precipitated just by some uh, you know d depression and and just anguish that was going on that I couldn't quite trace the source of and it took me a while to fi to to figure some of this out and so as that happened I started to write in a different way that was a, was a little bit, like I said, like at that time, the, a lot of the songs I'd been writing had been very kind of clever and very, or, you know, at least attempting yeah. to be clever. <laughs> um, and, and very sort of poppy, which I love pop music. Uh, right. But I, I think I started to kind of get bored with myself because I felt like I wasn't risking a lot in my music. It was all very kind of persona driven and very, it, I was only showing what I wanted to show, right. what I felt, you know, confident and, and, and about showing. And, you know, and, and I felt at a certain point, like, you know, the people that were really compelling as performers and artists, right? Like, they're risking something, right? Like they're risking rejection every time they, they go on stage or, and I mean, that's always true, but I think that more becoming a little bit more conscious of that and sort of saying like, well, what am I putting out there? And because, because there's some reciprocity in, in that, right? Like you want the audience to meet you, you want the audience. And in order to do that, they have to be vulnerable as well. They have to open themselves to what you're putting across. Mm -hmm. And how can you expect them to do that if you're not open? Okay. And I mean, this is all like, you know, analysis in retrospect. I don't <laughs> think I was thinking of this all that, that deliberately, but nonetheless, I, I felt like I had some new things to say 
that demanded a different sort of lyrical style and, and, and a different musical palette as well. And so that coupled with the fact that it was just more difficult to actually have band practice every week (laughs) and things like that. That's what got me started thinking about making my first, um, solo record trembling frames and which came out in 2017. So that came out in 2017. And so I've got a couple questions about this because it release wise anyway, um, I saw and listened to a lot, and not, not the whole thing yet, but I'm definitely going back to listen to it, Cruel Dream. Oh, yeah, the film soundtrack. Yes. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? Was that like a transitional period between Red Jacket Mine and Trembling Frames, or was that just something that you did during Red Jacket Mine? How, what is it, and, and how did it happen? When did it happen? So that, um, yeah... That was a great project. Um, it came out in 2019 in between my two solo records, but okay. it, but most of the music was recorded, I think, in 2017, right after the release of Trembling Frames. So tw- okay. Trembling Frames was recorded in 20, early 2016 and came out in early 2017. And then even like a little bit, uh, the film soundtrack was recorded on in at the same time that we were uh, doing the release tour for trembling frames and immediately following that. So that project originated, that is uh, the filmmaker is named Steve Turner and he's based in Southeast Missouri as well. He's a very close friend of mine for a long time. He was actually my boss in college at the Barnes and Noble in Girardeau, Missouri. (laughs) And, uh, and he, uh, he and I had kept in touch and he had started to really pursue film very seriously after I had moved away. And so I had con- contributed some songs to some of his earlier films as well, like songs that were already recorded, Red Jacket Mine material and things like that. Okay. But he hatched this idea for this documentary film, The Past Is Never Dead, in the you know, 2016 sort of time frame. And it was about uh, this gentleman, David Lee Robinson from Sykeston, Missouri, who had been wrongfully convicted of a murder and kept in prison for, for, you know, 15 plus years. Um, And the story was just starting to get some attention. And he ultimately was released from prison kind of right before the film was, was finished, but it was a super important story. I mean, uh, for anyone that isn't from Southeast Missouri, you might think it's Missouri, it's the Midwest, but Southeast Missouri is decidedly the South yeah. in in my opinion. Um, sure. And, uh, and it has all the baggage of, of the deep South. And that's really what the story is about. Okay. It's about the, about institutional racism and the deeply flawed criminal justice system in this country. And so it was a super important story to tell. And it was a great, great opportunity for me to be able to, to make music that was sort of inspired by the, just the, the tone and the landscape of, uh, uh, the backdrop of this story. And so I got to play with all the core musicians who've been a part of of my last few solo records, John Combertino from Calexico, Levon Henry, a great saxophone and clarinet player, Daniel Walker, Johnny Sankster, former performance anxiety guest, Paul Haraga played keys on a number of songs (laughs) on on that film soundtrack. Um, And yeah, that was just a really, it was like being in a candy store, right? Like we rented a 
a nine foot marimba and a vibraphone and a bunch of stuff and just went wild for a few days. Um, that is and, so cool. It was, a, it was super fun. I was listening to it and I, and I, and I went back to, to reference it on, on your website. And I, I don't know if YouTube has some other tracks or some of the tracks didn't, they're listed as like, uh, there's one actually called cruel dream, but I didn't see that in the track listing on your website. So hmm. I'm not exactly sure which one is which, and it didn't sound like it was on and an anything that was linked on your website. So I don't know what ex exactly is going on with YouTube, but they they have huh, a song listed as cruel dream. Mm -hmm. And that is my favorite. That song sounds so menacing. Yeah. What yeah. you just described the movie as, it sounds like it fits perfectly. It's incredible. Yeah, that's one of the tracks that Paul plays on. Uh, we oh, we cool. cut that at what used to be Jupiter Studios in Seattle and is now called, why can't I think of the name? Um, escaping me right now. Don Farwell's the engineer and okay. he's a great guy. And so we we had ducked in, like I said, we were we were playing a few shows in the Northwest to support the release of trembling frames inducted to his studio for one day and, uh, and wow. just cut a yeah, handful of tracks and it was super fun. Cruel dream was one of them. Oh, that's one day, man. So that seems to be, if I'm reading some of the, the, the history of the music, that doesn't seem to be unusual for you. You go in and you get a lot of things done very quickly. Kind, yeah, it's kind of, because I, I also did read that the, I guess maybe the first song that really triggered Trembling Frames, How to Escape, came to you, but then there really wasn't much for a while after that as far as your songwriting. And so, I mean, I think there's, there's songwriting and then there's recording and usually those two processes aren't super mixed up for right. me. So songwriting tends to come in seasons for me, right? There are times where I'll write a lot in a very short period of time. Certainly most of the songs for Trembling Frames, with the exception of, of How to Escape, were written in a very, like maybe a six week period. And similar for my newest record, Fourth at the Prize, was written mostly in like February, March 2020, immediately before the pandemic kind of really took hold. Oh, um, okay. But when it comes time to record, my MO for the last 
yeah, seven or eight years at this point has been to to cast the 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 room uh, with, to really just bring in the very very best and most sympathetic and and sensitive musicians that I can find and then work really quickly with very very little rehearsal or preparation. Oh wow. Um to really capture the moment of discovery on on tape. And rather than having s- sort of really beaten an arrangement into <laughs> shape and just sort of having it be a recital, I want it to be a revelation. Okay. <laughs> I, I like that. I like it. Now, you mentioned, you know, you've worked with some of these people for quite a while, the sound on your solo stuff is, is quite different from Red Jacket Mine. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and it leads me to, into two questions here. Was that, first of all, was that planned or was it just the natural progression of your writing? And what kind of reaction did you get when you first started playing this out to people who were familiar with Red Jacket Mine? Mm. Yeah, um, it, it wasn't planned. It did feel like a, a natural progression to me. Okay. I think that I've, I'd always been intrigued by more complex and kind of subversive pop songcraft and, and the kind of, you know, um, especially sort of mid sixties or, you know, mid century pop music that might seem simple on the surface, but then you start to take it apart and you're like, wow, Oh, that's only a half verse. And then, <laughs> and then the, the chorus starts in a different place on that next, uh, on the next round. And, Oh my God, like that's a, you know, a minor 11th chord or, you know what I mean? Like, um, <laughs> that's always been super intriguing to me. And I honestly think the reason is, is because the harmonic complexity of some of that music suggests emotions that aren't simple. Right. Okay. Um, you know, it's not just happy or just sad. It's all, it's all mixed up together. And I know that that's like really reductive, but, um, but you know, I think that I've always been drawn to really dense and naughty, naughty K N O T T Y, um, uh, <laughs> harmony. I'm glad you clarified it, that. Yeah. You know, I, I, you know, I, I'm not above some naughty harmony as well, but, um, I think that, uh, it, yeah, it just felt truer to me. It didn't feel sort of one dimensional from an emotional and sort of psych psychological perspective. And so that enabled you to tell stories with more shade and, and nuance because the, the music can pick up where the words leave off um, right, from, right. Uh, from an emotional sort of resonance point of view. So I felt like I had been working at that for a long time and the music in the songcraft through Red Jacket Mine got progressively more nuanced. But then when it came time to cover the topics that my newer songs were covering in when I began to write Trembling Frames, that demanded a whole different set of, of paints. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and there were some light bulbs that went off in that process for me of just term in terms of how to piece these more classic sort of song forms together, things like voice leading on, on the guitar and how to, how some of these standards like jazz standards w- w- really worked. And I just kind of, you know, I was kind of, 
lighting one off the end of the other, right? For a, a while of like, oh, and then that I figured that out. And and now I'm going to carry that into the next song. And and so it felt pretty natural to me and very satisfying uh, of like, okay, yeah, the, this is something new. This is, this is, I'm surprising myself again, which is okay. kind of the ultimate objective, I think, is to, to pull something out of yourself that you didn't know was there. Exactly. Um, and so I was super excited to present those songs to the world. And I would say that, I mean, I got a, a lot of a really great support, but people that had been diehard fans of Red Jacket Mind were probably a little bit taken aback by that one-two punch of like, minor key jazz ballads and child abuse, you know, it's like not necessarily like something you would, uh, put together in a, uh, it's not chocolate and peanut butter. right. Yeah. Well, you know, um, <laughs> well, jazz, jazz is pretty dark. So, um, but you know, I think it, yeah, it felt more jarring to the audience than it did to me because I had been there through, through every sort of like phase uh, of the progression Yeah, and the audience probably, they went from, you know, this, I'd say that the, the lat, the later period red jacket mind stuff was more in the vein of Elvis Costello, Niccolo yeah, for sure. to things like even like the carpenters, right. Or seventies kind of, you know, pop music. And I see the, I saw the thread right, right. between that and, uh, and, and the newer stuff, but I think, yeah, it was probably a little bit shocking and okay. took everyone a little while to acclimate, but the people that were I, I really do believe that music finds the people that it's for and, and that continually sort of proves to be the case. So, you know, it, it, and the, and the great thing is like, if you, if, if anyone prefers the red jacket mind music, all that's still there. Right. And no hard feelings, right. right. Like that's totally <laughs> fine. But I, you know, I, I felt like I've been really, really fortunate to be able to continually grow and refine what it is that I'm trying to do. And it, and with every record, it's felt more and more true to, to who I am and not just as an artist, but as a human being. And I believe that that's going to find its target, even if it takes a long time yeah. or, uh, you know, it, I'm, I'm planting seeds yeah. for, for the future. <laughs> so trembling frames came out in 2017 and mm -hmm. how to escape was part of that. But, there was an EP before that, the residual blues. That kind of came out at the same time. Okay. Uh, we had just a few leftover tracks that didn't fit on the record from thematically, but also just in terms of actually wouldn't fit on a record. Damn it. Discogs, um, they, they have that listed as 2016 and trembling frames is 2017. Oh man. Damn yeah. It, I mean, I, I put them out at the same time. Okay. Uh, it was really, I just, I enjoyed those songs and I wanted them to have some sort of life. And so, but yeah, uh, uh, residual blues is a lyric from the song, tell it to the judge. And it felt uh, appropriate for some <laughs> leftover material. When you stand and accused of residual the beast that will not be born lame with 
so fascinated by this because I can't hear it. I don't see any of these songs on YouTube. So I wanted to. Oh, really? Yeah, I wanted it's, to. It's on Bandcamp. Uh, you can definitely okay. find it on Bandcamp. I have to go check that out because that the problem that I have with Bandcamp, it's not a bad problem. It's that when I go and listen to it after a couple of times, then it won't let you, you know, it's like, oh, buy it and oh, until i can right. afford to buy it then it, you know so i don't want to listen to it over and over again and not purchase it so while i'm researching it uh if i can't go pick these things up immediately i'm like oh i gotta rely on youtube so so the question i had about that is someone to watch over me is that is that the uh gershwin song it is oh okay yeah. so now i have to go buy it. and that was a that was a that song was sort of a a key to unlocking some of the sort of song craft that, that I employed on trembling frames is I learned that song off of the blossom Deary version. Are you familiar with blossom Deary? No, she's amazing. So she's a, was a, ja a jazz singer and pianist, it, mostly active in the fifties and sixties, all up, up until the eighties. She and I actually share the same birthday, April 28th, which is a big wow. uh, sort of pride for me. But she's an amazing interpreter, and she had she did a version of that song that really spoke to me, and I learned that off of her record. And that, again, I, th I think just kind of learning the way that that song was put together helped me crack, so, you know, the nut that I was trying working on to um, to work on some of the songs for Trembling Frames. And so uh, it was actually I Johnny and I had made a demo of that maybe 2015. And, uh, we had shared that with, uh, John Convertino when we were talking with him about playing on the record. And so we had, we, we tracked everything for trembling frames in three days at, um, a studio litho in Seattle. Wow. And we had gone out, uh, in the neighborhood for a celebratory dinner and drink. And, uh, and it was still fairly early in the, it was like eight o'clock maybe or something like that. And John, was like, you know, there's one other song that we could record. And, and we're like, really? And he's like, yeah, the Gershwin song. And so we all, we were a little drunk. We all went back to the studio <laughs> and, and cut the, uh, cut someone to watch over me. Oh. And I've just loved the, the spirit of that version. If you haven't heard it, I'll definitely, I, I'm sure I have one of those CDs around. I'll mail it to you, but oh, um, that'd be amazing. There's a somebody I'm longing to see I hope that he turns out to be I, I love that version of the song, uh, and uh, and I love that song. It's just a gorgeous, yeah. immortal song. Did you play out with this stuff a lot? And was that tough? Because it, a lot of it is very, like you said, very personal. Dealing with a lot of issues from your childhood. I mean, was it is it hard to get up there on that on a stage and and start singing about trauma? I mean, yeah, it is in a way. It's definitely, I think it's hard. It demands a, a lot of an audience if they're going to 
if it's more than just background music. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. But you know, I, I will say though that it was it was very nourishing to me to speak or sing uh, about these things publicly because it was a relief of a, of a bur- the burden of secrecy, right? Like when you grow up in an abusive situation, there's a lot of shame and a lot of secrecy around that. And that's what allows those situations to continue. And so finally having the language and the musical vocabulary and the strength to, to speak about those things and to uh, express those emotions. It was, um, it was instrumental for me in terms of like my own healing. And I believe for other people's healing, right? Like yeah. I, I believe that, uh, because I'm, I'm not alone, right. right. In, in this, right. Like there's lots of people and it, it, it looks a million different ways, but I, I felt like, and, and continue to feel like it's really important to be able to speak about these things as plainly as, as I, as you can, because it kind of breaks that seal that isolates you when you're in that type of situation. And so I, I I guess what I'm getting at is it is challenging, especially if I'm going to connect with the material emotionally and the audience is going to connect with the material emotionally. It does demand a lot, but it's also a tremendous privilege and it, and it feels very, um, sacred to me in a way to be able to, to and quite frankly, to have survived and, and have the opportunity to do it in the first place. Well, I think it's amazing. The, just the, the honesty in the music and the fact that you never know who it's going to, to reach out and, and touch mm-hmm. and maybe inspire somebody else to, to open up about their own issues and maybe go seek mm-hmm. some help where they wouldn't have otherwise. And so right. I, I think it's, first of all, it's brave on your part and it, it's wonderful, but I think it's also inspiring for anybody. Could, you know, you don't know who it's going to be inspired, but if it just helps one person, then, then it's, right. it's definitely worth whatever you're doing to get to that, that point that you're at. Thank you. You know, I, I, I hope so. And I, I you know, I, that's definitely what, yeah, it, it's what kind of fuels me to, to do it and, and keep, discovering, right? Like those, those layers of, of meaning in my own story, right? And that's, that's not a one and done sort of situation, right? Right. Like I'm still, uh, I'm still piecing that together. What does it mean for me? And my perspective on it has evolved a lot since I wrote those songs. I still believe in those songs and and they're very true, but uh, I wouldn't write them the same way today. And that's, that's, wow that's a good thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? That means I'm still growing. True, true. And, you know, hopefully you will continue to grow and, and that everything will continue to grow. You won't look back at them, you know, in another right. year, you may look at them back differently yeah. yet again. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that, you know, your writing style process and even point of view now has changed, not just from Red Jacket Mine to your solo work, but from solo album to solo album from year to year. Do you have a process to your writing? I know you mentioned that you used to write every day, but do you, mm-hmm. and, and you don't anymore, but do you have something that triggers your writing? Is there something that you, you will sit back and, and put, uh, maybe I really want to get some new workout. Let me, let me go book a date 
and that'll kind of give me a deadline and now it kind of forces me to write. Do you have any type of process to getting the right kickstarting your writing? Um, I've definitely done that. What you, <laughs> what you described before, I've definitely sort of set whether it's a, whether it's a show or a, a residency that's coming up or, or a recording date. I've planned for things like that. And then, and then sort of had to rise to the occasion. Right. And that definitely has worked before. I'll say today, my process involves a lot more rest and reflection than it used to, right? I used to be very, very driven and feel like I have to be writing right now or else I'm a sham. You know what I mean? Uh, um, I, I think I've learned to be a lot more gentle with myself in the last few years. And part of that just comes with time and, and maturity. There's the confidence of like, you no, know, when the time comes, the material will, will be there. Right. Like, and, and I'm always writing, even when I'm not writing, okay. you know what I mean? But, um, those, those fallow periods seemingly, they have just as much value for me as, uh, as the periods of activity, although the periods of activity are much more fun. You know what I mean? Like it's fun to be caught up in that. Right. And, and, and as I sort of said earlier, like lighting one off the end of the other, there's nothing, nothing beats that feeling, but you can't do that indefinitely. Right. Like right. you have to, you have to stop and you have to take in new material, uh, as well. True. Just practically speaking, almost all the songs on my new record started with vocal melodies. And I had never really written in that way before. A lot of times I'd started on the guitar. Yeah. I very rarely start with lyrics, but I previously had started most of my songs with the guitar in hand and put, come up with a chord progression and then married a melody to that. And then lyrics. I started a lot of the songs on the new record though, without the guitar in hand. And that was, uh, I think that that enabled me to break out of some patterns melodically. And then once I had what I felt like was a strong melody that may or may not have been accompanied by, you know, snippets of lyrics, I could then set about kind of building the, the backdrop, you okay. know, the, the chords and things that would support that, that melody. And that worked out really well for this record. I have no idea how I'll write the next <laughs> one, but, uh, but I trust that I, that it, that will come. Something will happen. So, Yeah. Well, I mm -hmm. love the sound that you've created on Trembling Frames, and mm -hmm. I love the sound on Forfeit the Prize. I mean, you've got this really cool, I, and I almost hate to use these names because they're names that, that people throw out a lot, but it's it's, it's like almost like Backrack meets Lynch. In this. Oh, yeah. It's such a cool that, sound. That goes on the, that should go on the sticker yeah. on the front. Uh. <laughs> but like like memory up and die. Yeah. That's just a crazy song. I that I think that's my favorite off oh, of Trembling Frames. I love that. The vocal effect is just wild. I love that. Thank you. So the new album, Forfeit the Prize, 
that is is a little more of a lush production, I would say. Mm-hmm. You've got maybe more expansive. I, I'm not exactly yeah. the right because you've incorporated some things that you and what sounds like you purposefully avoided in trembling frames, some strings and and things. Um, yeah, and you know more lush background vocals with former podcast guests Kelly Hogan, Nora O'Connor, and Casey McDonough of Flat Five and mm-hmm. NRBQ and Nico Case. So. First of all, I guess, did you purposefully avoid that stuff from Trembling Frames? And, and why did you decide that now would be a good time to make things a little more lush and, and, and broaden the musical instrumentation on it? Yeah. Um, so, so I think I did purposefully issue those things when, it, when I wrote and recorded Trembling Frames because maybe it felt like it was a little bit two on the nose. Um, okay. Like I was already making such a aesthetic shift <laughs> True. that it felt like if I go ahead and I smother these things in strings, it's going to feel kitschy or something, okay. right? Like, and I, I wanted to kind of make a, something that was fairly, I mean, the, there's still a lot of, of texture and layer in layers in that music, but it, I didn't want to, you know, uh, gild the lily too much. Right. Like I wanted it to be, uh, and so that, that was why I avoided it the first time around. I was like, you know, I didn't want it to just feel like a a genre exercise. Uh, I wanted to keep it still, you know, very personal and, and raw in a certain sense of that word. Right. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Uh, um, but, uh, when I wrote the songs for forfeit the prize and started to think about recording those, there's a couple things, right? Like number one, I felt like I had come more fully into my own voice with these songs. So I didn't feel as, as, um, self-conscious, I guess I would say about if I put strings on these or if I make whatever production choice I need to, what does it mean? What is it going to say? What will people think? Right. right. Like, I think I just felt more confident in general. Okay. I also felt that the, the worldview or the point of view in these songs was inherently more expansive um, and, and had and possessed more perspective, um, a broader perspective. And I felt like I wanted to portray that in the music as well, right? Like I wanted the I wanted the the um, aperture to be wider, you know what I mean? Like, um, and there and that felt like there could be more sonic information to kind of embellish what was uh, what was going on inside the songs. And then I think the last thing that I'd never thought of until just now, but I don't think is off base is I think I just felt like involving more people oh. in this record. And I mean, that's all part of the same thing of like opening myself up to the world, to possibility, to the, the unknown and embracing that. 
and wanting to share that with other people, right? Like Trembling Frames was still a very collaborative record, but it was a much tighter group of people. Yeah. And something about, you know, these songs and then recording them coming out of the worst part of the pandemic. I think I wanted to share it with as many people as possible. And this, and having a broader palette and bringing in strings and additional background vocals and whatever enabled me to just bring more people to the party. As if waking up were a feat enough, a recast on So you mentioned the pandemic. Between albums, we had one. Yeah. And you would mentioned you know, being in depressed and having the depression uh, with the last album. The isolation and lockdowns, was that difficult? I mean, or, or did the... Were you in a better frame of mind to handle the pandemic? And and did the music help you through any of that? Yeah, I feel really fortunate that I, that 2020 found me in a much, much better place psychologically than, uh, and emotionally than I had been in, you know, back when I wrote the songs for Trembling Frames, Mm -hmm. just a lot of a lot of personal growth, right? Like and healing had taken place and it's still right. Like ongoing, but no, I felt much, you know, I think this might even be in the bio that my friend Kurt Riley helped me with for this record. But in 2020, I felt like there was so much less to enjoy for obvious reasons in life, but I felt infinitely more capable of enjoying it. So I feel really, really fortunate in that, that, that time was, it was a very, it was a lonely time. Like I think it was for everyone, Mm -hmm. but it was also an immensely like nourishing and fertile time for me. Okay. In, from an interiority perspective. And I was able to kind of, I was happy <laughs> when I was able to be out in the world again right. and, and, and making this record was a real expression and celebration of that. But no, I mean, I, yeah, I feel really lucky to answer your question. I, I wasn't, I didn't struggle with a lot of sort of depression or some of the things that had plagued me in years prior during the pandemic. And I'm really grateful for that because it would have made a difficult time much, much, much more difficult. Exactly. Now, the new album, I love, I think one of my favorites on the album is the opener, Miracle of Sorts. Oh, cool. I love yeah. that. Song. I love the background vocals. You know, yeah. The the whole song, it's just a beautiful song. Everything is so uh, full sounding. And that's what I, one of the things I really enjoyed about it is just, there's a connection between Trembling Frames and Forfeit the Press, but it's, it's definitely its own album. It's not just a continuation. And that's, I think that's yeah. what I liked about it. Like, uh, for example, um, what is this song? Only an Idiot. Mm-hmm. I love that song. I love the, uh, the again, the background vocals, the whole thing. It sounds like it's, it's got this great, like, 70s Laurel Canyon kind of vibe mm. to it, which I 
which you know i grew up listening to that stuff so i, I yeah. had an immediate connection to it to choose to die upon a magic mountain rather than concede defeat there's no accounting forfeit the prize locked inside a fortress of certainty training is size passed upon the treasure Consider the price to dwell in this precarious state and still hazard an idiot's fate. The strings throughout the whole thing, it's just really, it's just an amazingly well written uh, and beautifully performed album. And thank you. Are you taking it out on on the road? Are you are you are you playing locally? Are you doing it? Uh, are, are you going to tour with it? And how do you manage the interesting assortment of of sounds? Because you've got strings on there, you've got reeds, woodwinds. How would how do you translate that into a live setting? Is that something that you think of when you're recording and writing, or do you just worry about that later? You know, I think, I don't think I think about it a lot when I'm recording or writing. However, I will say that even though there are a lot of layers on the record, the core of the record and Trembling Frames as well is a live performance and a band. Like, you know, basically we track, you know, guitar, bass, drums, keys, and lead vocals live to tape. Oh, cool. And so having that foundation... And right, like that is your, that's your proof of concept right there. Right. In terms of, right. If, and then you can embellish that and we do, and on the new record quite a lot, but that sort of, that demonstrates that the, the song can be realized, right. Like with that, those sort of basic ingredients. And we have done some touring, uh, around this record. The record came out in October of 2022. And we did a handful of shows in the Northwest, which I mentioned, right? Like it's still where the majority of my community uh, resides. Yeah. And so we played a handful of shows, uh, full band shows supporting the record release back then. And then in March of 2023, just a couple months ago, I did uh, a week or so of dates in the Midwest, including a great show with the flat five in Evanston, Illinois. And, uh, and that was with Daniel Walker, who I mentioned on keys, John Convertino on drums and Johnny Sangster on baritone guitar. And there's actually a great video on YouTube, uh, called live at weird stuff antiques yes. recorded when we were in Kansas city. And so that's a great little document of that band, right. Which is, you know, a subset of the band that plays on the record, but, uh, I think had some magic all of its own, uh, just with that, that lineup. And so we did that. And then, you know, every show is a bit different, right? Because I live in South Carolina. John lives in El Paso. Johnny and Dan live in Seattle. You know, it's, it's rare that everyone can be in the same place at the same time. Yeah. We are doing a show in August in Seattle, August 24th at the Royal Room in Seattle with the string quartet. Uh, oh. led by and- Andrew Joslin, who did a, some of the arranging and all the performance on the record. Uh, he's putting together an ensemble that's going to back us up. So the basically all the players from the record, 
plus Andrew and his string quartet are going to be performing with us in August. So I'm really looking forward to that. That'll be actually my first show with strings. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, so I think that'll be a lot of fun. The uh, live at weird stuff that, mm-hmm. that is such a cool, I'm going to say piece that you did the, um, uh, what the hell is the name of the song? Safe for dreaming. We're never past redeeming in a bed that's safe for dreaming. I know just where to find you in my dreams. Ever toward half done forward, who would choose to save? I love that version. And if I remember reading correctly, that was the first song you wrote for Forfeit the Prize. Now, it sounded like it almost went through a similar process as Trembling Frames, where you you had one song and then nothing for a little while, and then the rest came in a burst. Is that, is, was that the same type of I think situation? pretty much is true, yeah. Um, there's only one other song on the record that predates that, uh, and that, that's a song called Lion's Paw. Delusions were hit for all to be entertained. The lion's paw, the dragon's maw. All the same. that song was written actually when i still lived in pendleton oregon in 2019 but it's sort of and so sort of between records but yeah it was a similar process where i had kind of this long period of not a lot a a period of drought and, (laughs) and and then uh and then I wrote Safe for Dreaming and that provided like a glimmer of like, okay, this is, this could point the way to the future, but it didn't immediately all, you know, come flowing a- after that. There was still a few more months of searching okay. uh, before I really, you know, got on a roll. So it, it sounds like you get, like you mentioned, a glimmer of hope before the floodgates open. So it takes a little while and then, then the songs come after yeah. you get, you, you get, uh, you prime the pump, I guess, maybe with. with right. Yeah. I think that, that, I mean, yeah, I, 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 it's hard to, it's hard to know exactly how it works, but it, that is, that is how it has worked at least a couple of times. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's no, nothing saying that it's going to happen for the next one, but who right. knows? So are you in the process of, of writing now or in the process of supporting the the latest album uh where are you at professionally i guess uh, what's what's your focus right now yeah so i'm still pretty focused on promoting forfeit the prize but i am starting to think about writing again that's generally the way that it really starts <laughs> is i start to just it starts to feel, i just start to feel like a stirring and and a curiosity and almost like a an itch 
right? Uh, that, that I need, that there's something that needs to be explored or expressed, but it might be months, right? You know what I mean? Before I, before anything actually sort of comes to, to fruition, right. but you know, I've got the feeling that, um, that I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to start writing again in earnest pretty soon, but right now I, you know, I really want to, I, I really am proud of this record and I really want as many people as possible to hear it. And so I'm, I'm pretty focused on spreading the word and in playing shows and things like that as much as I can. I love it. I'm so glad I got a chance to listen to it because it's a lot different from what's in my daily rotation. And I, yeah. I imagine it's it's a lot different for what's in most people's daily rotation because of that jazzy Bacharach slash David Lynch field. It's a wonderful escape. It's a wonderful change because I get tired of as as much as I enjoy rock, heavy music, I mean, you know, but I can't do that all the time. I need I need something different. Like you're like, you know, you were just talking about something to to spark the, the creativity and I need, yeah. I, I need stuff like Lincoln bar to mm-hmm. spark the creativity and, and get me interested in, in, in doing something different with what I'm doing in my own life. So I want to thank you for being brave enough to, to do something that's different, finding your voice and, and making the music that you want to make. It's inspiring and it's a, it, it's a beautiful piece of work. So thank you. Well, thank you, Mark. It's such a privilege. It's a, it's a privilege to be able to do it and to, to continue to do it and ha- be surrounded by such an amazing and supportive community of, of just incredibly talented and kind people, right? Like that is, that, that is so rewarding, right? And then there's an attraction that happens with, you know, when that sort of love gets captured, right? Like on a record, I I think that it attracts more uh, of it. Right. And, and so to, yeah, I I'm really, I'm really pleased and really um, humbled by, by your sentiment. And I'm, I'm really, you know, I think I said in something around the release of the record that it was a joy to make it. And that I hope that that joy can make its way into the people that hear the record and fuel whatever it is that they're, they're searching for, you know what I mean? Uh, and if the music's doing that, even on the one-on-one level, like then I'm, I'm really grateful. Well, you said at the beginning, you think music finds, finds its people. And I think you're right. And I think people find their people, which is why you've got Uh such an amazing group of people around you, like three fifths of the flat five, (laughs) Johnny Sangster, (laughs) you know, it's, You've got some amazing people working with you. You're writing amazing music. And I think that uh, it, it that's one of the things that draws me into it is that it's honest and it's it's different and it's just fun. Even, even though, you know, some of it is a little dark, but, you know, it's it's not doom and gloom dark you know there's right. there's hope in this music and yeah you're dealing you deal with some some issues but it's it's hopeful and I, I i love it so thank you so much for for being on the podcast for spending gosh we've been doing this for an hour and a half now for for spending so much time with me and for for dealing with my medical issues <laughs> <laughs> stupid teeth 
No, it's a, like I said, Mark, it's a, it's a real privilege. I appreciate the time and the care that you put into these conversations. I've really enjoyed listening to the podcast and I'm going to keep doing it. And, and Thank you I so much. look forward to sharing this conversation with, with my friends. I lit the fuse. I primed the star. I played confused, behaved as if I had no part. I hurled abuse to fail the faint of heart. I chalked it up to the vicissitudes of art. That might have worked, it had before. The similarities were too much to ignore. As a man would have anticipated more, if not a war. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.